this week on Hope for the Broken. We have a tendency to take our eyes off of the Lord and to play the comparison game and want what others have. When we do that, what we believe would be a blessing in our lives winds up being a curse. Listen, you are not made to be like everyone else. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And it is our responsibility to pursue that purpose and to pursue that plan. And then and only then will we discover the true blessings of God. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Life Lessons. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part nine titled, When God is Rejected. Well, we're in the middle of a teaching series that we've entitled Life Lessons. And what we're doing is we're working our way as we study the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And I don't know about you, but it's been the case for me that, that never before has 1 Samuel come alive to me like it is right now. And, and I'm enjoying the study together, and I hope it's been beneficial to you uh, as well. But so far in our study, we've, we've taken a look at how God answered the prayers of Hannah and giving her a son that she named Samuel, which means heard from God. And then she vows to give him, uh, Samuel back to the Lord all the days of his, uh, of his life, and she does just that. And we saw how Samuel was a, was a godly person, even in the midst of a very evil culture and evil leadership. And we took a look at how God, or how Samuel had to learn to hear God's voice, and that we too can learn to hear God's voice. We saw the destruction that comes about when evil leadership reigns and rules, uh, but how God ultimately worked to bring revival back to the people of Israel. And this is where we pick up the story today in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It is our plan to work our way all the way through the entire chapter here this morning. A couple things about this chapter that is interesting of note. It is a transition chapter. It's a turning point in the story of the nation of Israel. In this chapter, we'll see the transition from Samuel's leadership to laying the foundation to King Saul taking over reign and rule of the nation of Israel. And so the form of government will change here in the course of one chapter. Israel will move from a theocracy, being governed and led by God himself, to a monarchy, being led and governed by a king. And the people's demand, as we're going to see, for a king is going to bring about hardship in their lives. It's going to bring about heartache. And so we're going to study chapter 8 by looking at the rejection. We're going to look at the results and then the refusal, and then I want to point out two life lessons that we learned from our study here this morning. So let's begin today's study as we take a look at the rejection. Number one, the rejection. The people of Israel are going to demand a king, and in so doing, they will reject God as lead in their lives. So let's read beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 8. 
It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So as Samuel grew in his age, he turned to God's word of what would be next for the nation of Israel. And by appointing his sons to reign as as, uh, judges, what he was doing was actually putting into effect Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, which asks Samuel, asks the leadership of the nation of Israel to install other leaders for a transition time. So Joel and Abijah are sent way down south to Beersheba. Now, I think that Samuel did this because I think he was suspect to their character and he wanted them in leadership while he was still in leadership so that he could evaluate their ability to lead and to lead well. But as it turns out, Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways and they turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and they were corrupt in their dealings with justice. What does this remind you of? Reminds us of the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, right? Eli and his sons were very corrupt. And so it seems like it's the same song, second verse. The only difference is that Eli played into his son's corruption, whereas Samuel remained outside of his son's corruption. Let's pick up in verse 4. It says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together. Now, what this seems to be is some sort of a council of people who were deemed to be extremely holy or wise uh, in their approach to to dealings with, with life. And so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Ramah is where Samuel lived. And they said to him, they said to Samuel, behold, you and your sons, or you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now I think we can make a couple of assumptions as to why this request for a king was displeasing to Samuel. I think maybe it was, uh, you know, something that that communicated to Samuel that they were no longer happy with the way that he was uh, leading. But as we're going to see, there's something way more at play here than just Samuel and his leadership. And so it became apparent to everyone that Joel and Abijah weren't going to cut the mustard. So the people sent the elders of the Israel to have a conversation with Samuel. And so we're going to learn that this isn't going to go well for the Israelites But before we cast judgment on them, let's place ourselves in their position. Samuel's aging. He's done very well. His sons are not a good solution. The enemies of Israel around them are beginning to mount against them. Something has to be done. And in their earthly wisdom, begin looking around and saying, how are other uh, nations modeled in their government? Maybe there needs to be a change in which we are governed. And so they began looking around at the examples of other nations and realized that maybe the logical thing is for us to change our form of government, to move from a theocracy to a monarchy. It makes sense. So they demand a king. And we're told that this breaks Samuel's heart. He is displeased. Why? Well, I think Samuel understands their request. Seems logical. 
I think he understands the reasoning behind the request, but it broke his heart because he knew that Israel was supposed to be different, distinct from the rest of the world, from the remaining countries, the remaining nations of the world. They're supposed to be different. They served an invisible king. They served the Lord God Almighty. And God intended Israel to be a theocracy led by him, but the people now want a visible king. What's happening here? What's happening here is similar to what happens to all of us in this kind of situation. They are seeking a political solution to a spiritual problem. They're seeking an earthly wisdom solution to a very spiritual problem. And any time and every time we do that, we will always wind up in trouble. It's a recipe for disaster. So let's look what happens. Samuel takes it to God. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so God rightly calls this very position that the Israelites are taking as a rejection of him. But you know what's interesting there in that passage is God says, you know, this has been the case with these Israelites from the very moment that I took them out of slavery in Egypt. What God is saying is this, is that they would only look to their own history, if they would only take notice of how I have moved in their life, how I have led them, and how I have blessed them in these days, then perhaps they could see things differently. Think about it. The theocracy was working and was working really well. God led them out of slavery in Egypt. He opened the Red Sea. He provided food and water for them in the desert. They had great military victories. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Uh, Last chapter, God thundered and defeated the Philistines right before their eyes. Things are going really well. So when the people demand a physical human king, God sees it as a rejection of him. What, am I not good enough for you? And here's what I think. I don't think that they were rejecting God altogether, right? They, they liked the security. They liked the benefits that come from the Lord God being in their life, but they wanted something different in terms of who reigned and who ruled over them. And so they had shifted. They wanted God more as a safety net than they did as their leader. Now, I think it's important for us to say that the request for the king is not wrong. It's not the request that is wrong here because God had promised them, hey, I'm going to give you a king and it's going to be a good king. But what was wrong with their request was that the timing wasn't right and their motive was way off. What was their motive? We want to be like everyone else. Remember what you tell your kids? Uh, when they're growing up, well, if everyone jumps off a bridge, will you jump off of a bridge too, right? Because everyone else is doing it is not a good reason to participate in something. Yet this was their motive, and this is where they had gotten off track. And so they rejected God. We see the rejection. Now, number two, let's look at the results. 
God, in his grace, warned the people what a kingly rule over them would be like. God didn't have to do that. God could have just granted their request and let them deal with the aftermath. But God instead, through the voice of Samuel, warns the people, listen, this is what's going to happen if you choose an earthly king. Let's pick it up, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And then he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Do you see the key word here in that section of Scripture? It's the word take. Seven times in the courses of this passage, God warns the people that if you want a king, all he's going to do is take and take and take and take and take and take again. And, and it's going to be a burden to you. In other words, God is saying, do you really want an earthly king? Is this really what you want? Consider the, the relationship we've had. Consider how I've moved, and I have not been a burden to you, for my yoke is easy, me, easy, my burden is light. But yet if you choose a king, this is what is in store for you. Do you really want that? Here's what's going to happen a king will be a burden to their families. He's going to take their sons by way of military draft. He's going to take his sons and make them work for him for a low wage. He's going to take the daughters and place them in government work. The king is going to be a burden to your family. But in addition to that, he's going to be a burden to your finances, God says. In addition to giving to the tabernacle, now you're going to have to pay taxes to support the government and its work. The king will be a burden to your family, to your finances. Thirdly, the king will be a burden to your freedom. Verse 17 says, And he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Are you sure, Israel, that you want that? Now, I know some pastors and some theologians have taken this to be an indictment on government in and of itself, but I want to be clear here. We need human government. It serves as a means of protection and order and flourishing. But let's face it. Every time we turn to government, to the world, to provide us an answer to a spiritual problem, we wind up regretting it. And this is exactly what the nation of Israel is doing. They're abandoning God, turning to earthly wisdom, and it's going to wind up being an, a burden to them. So we see the rejection. We see the results. Now let's look at the refusal. 
The people asked for a king, wrong time, wrong motive. Then God, being a gracious God, warns them, and then he gives them an opportunity to vote. The results are in. And in verse 19, begins to outlay the results of the vote. Look at what they said in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and that our king may go out before us and fight our battles for us. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord because that was his job. Verse 22, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. Make them a king. And so Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city as we begin to make preparations to anoint what you have asked for. By way of spoiler alert, they're going to get a king. It's going to be King Saul. And if you're familiar with the biblical text at all, he's not a good king. And everything that God warned them of will come to fruition because of King Saul's leadership. Turns out God knew what he was talking about, but the people wanted something different. You know, I think we have a tendency to think, well, that's an Old Testament kind of relationship with God. But don't forget, even in the New Testament, we see the same kind of arrangement. You remember in the book of Romans, in the opening chapter, where the, the world is pursuing their own ways and running after their own ways and rejecting God and rejecting God and rejecting God, and what happened in that circumstance? Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up. Gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God will give us what we want when we choose to reject Him. There is danger in refusing God's leadership. So we've seen, taking a look at the rejection, taking a look at the results, and then the refusal. So here's the question. What do we learn for us today in the 21st century? What is the takeaway that we could take from the Israelites' poor example here? I want to mention two life lessons, two things that we can learn from this very story. The first is this, avoid the comparison game. If I could urge you in any way possible, beloved, please avoid the comparison game. If you are in Christ, God has called you to be different than the world around you. You shouldn't blend in. I shouldn't look and reflect like the world around us. I should be different. We should be different. And the request for a king is not what was in error here. It was the desire to be like everyone else. Verse 5 says, And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." Listen, the comparison game is a dangerous game to play. And in our day and time, it seems to only be proliferated, right? Like social media gives us insight to other people's lives at such an exponential rate as it did prior to social media. 
We scroll through our newsfeed and we see what other people do. We see what other people have and we see how other people operate. And what often happens is we wind up playing the comparison game. We compare their posts to the real of our lives. And we begin to, to not be happy with the real of our lives. And instead we want the newsfeed of others' posts. We play the comparison game. We look at others and we want their jobs. We want their marriage. We want their looks. And as a result, we can spend our lives chasing the lives of others and miss the very life that God has called us to. The comparison game is dangerous. And by the way, have you considered that what people post are only the best of what they're experiencing? Like when you see a selfie, like here's the first question that comes to my mind. How many pictures did they not choose? You know what I mean? Like, and how many filters are on that thing, right? That picture right there to make it look just right. For every picture you see, there's a thousand others that are not good, good enough. The motive behind the Israelites' requests was in chasing the lives of nations around them. And truth be told, we're no different. We have a tendency to take our eyes off of the Lord and to play the comparison game and want what others have. And here's the kicker. When we do that, what we believe would be a blessing in our lives winds up being a curse. What the Israelites believed was going to be a blessing in their life was another king, but it's going to wind up being a curse. And it's true of our lives. For example, some people work hard to get a particular job or a promotion. If I can only have a job like them with the salary that they make, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have all this time. All they do is sit in a corner office and surf the internet only to gain that job and discover what? There's a lot more responsibility and stress that comes with that job, hence why they get the salary that they get. And then we're frustrated because now that very thing that we wanted demands so much of our lives that it can lead to relational dysfunction at home. What we think would be a blessing winds up being a curse. Or we look at marriage this way, don't we? We say, look at that couple. They seem to have it all together. And what happens is is that we take our eyes off of your marriage and you fall in love with someone else's marriage and it only makes you unhappy in your marriage. Listen, the comparison game is dangerous. God has called you to invest in your marriage and to make it what God desires you to make it in your marriage, not to have somebody else's relationship. And listen, I'm not saying that promotions, and I'm not saying that looking at for, uh, to others for inspiration is a bad thing. It's a very good thing. But when we want what they have more than what God has given us, then that's a problem. We play the comparison game. We get our eyes onto the wrong thing. It's very dangerous. Listen, you are not made to be like everyone else. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And it is our responsibility to pursue that purpose and to pursue that plan for our life. And then and only then will we discover the true blessings of God. Don't be mistaken. When you play the comparison game, you wind up chasing something you think will be a blessing that will result in being a curse. 
So avoid the comparison game. Life lesson number two, choose faith over fear. Choose faith over fear. I think one of the things that drove the Israelites to this decision was that they were afraid. They were terrified. Look again at verse 5. It says, And they said to him, Behold, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. What are they saying? Listen, Samuel, we've looked at the issues here. And, and this looks all too familiar to us. We've been here before. Remember Eli and his sons? We don't want to go down that road again. And they're fearful of the future. But what is it that they're forgetting? They're forgetting that God rose up Samuel in the midst of that very circumstance. They forgot how God can move. And so they no longer trust God and his provision. and Instead, they lean on their own ingenuity. That is the demonstration of fear. Wouldn't it be easier to trust God if we had some sort of a contract with him? You know, like, God, I'm going to step out on faith here, but the contract says that you've got to come through, right? Wouldn't it be so much easier to follow God that way? But what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates, God, I don't take you at your word. I need something more tangible in order to truly believe you. It's an expression of a lack of trust in God. It's not that they wanted God to be completely removed from their life. They just wanted him to step in when he needed to step in and let them take control of everything else. I remember the first time that I went bungee jumping. Anybody in here ever been bungee jumping before? Okay, a couple of you. Fun. Anybody been skydiving before? Y'all are crazy, all right? Uh, at least you have something attached to you that's like attached to something else. Um, but I remember the first time I went bungee jumping. Uh, I don't, by the way, I don't do it off of bridges. That's stupid. Um, because jumping off where there's a mat is way better, I guess. Um, but I remember the first time I went bungee jumping, me and my buddy, we went and we got harnessed up and we walk up the stairs to this platform that's really way high in the air. And there was a lady that was in front of me. I was next and my friend was going to go behind me. And, uh, while I was there, I was waiting for her to jump. And the guy said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say three, two, one bungee. And I want you to jump. Well, she's like looking over the edge and she's like terrified. And so he says, three, two, one bungee. She said, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. Right. And we're, we're up there for like 15 minutes. And, uh, and so she finally just says, you know what? I'm not going to jump. I'm going to walk back down this spiral staircase. So now I'm up. And whenever I get up there, I'm like, oh, I see what she's talking about, right? That's a little, that's a little high. But in my mind, this is what I thought. My mind's like, at least like, like I don't know if I'm in the harness right. And I've seen bungee cords break before. Um, but at least there's an inflated mat, right? Like that's going to save me, right? That's only going to prolong the inevitable, you know what I mean? And so, so, but in my mind, I'm thinking at least there's a safety net, right? At least there's a safety net. And so he says, three, two, one, bungee. And I, and I just jump and it was fun. And obviously I'm okay. And then it was time for my friend to go. One of the things that you need to know about this particular bungee place is right where the bungee connects to your harness, there was this, this pad that went around the bungee. So think like a, 
a, a football field goal post with a pad around it. You all know what I'm talking about? So it's, it's kind of like that. So he's looking and he's going, okay, I see the mat. I don't know if the mat is safe enough. So when the guy says three, two, one bungee, he jumps and he wraps his arms and his legs around the pad, right? And so he's, he's bungeeing like that. And so what he needed is he needed a little more security than I needed. The, the safety net, the mat wasn't quite enough. Why do I tell that story? I think a lot of times that's the, our, the way we approach our relationship with God, isn't it? Oh, I'll, I'll treat God like he's a safety net down below. Instead of him being the leader of our lives, he becomes a safety net in our life. And when we do that, we want control, and that is a demonstration of choosing fear over faith. The Israelites' request for a king represented a complete lack of faith in God. Have you ever been there? I know I have where you struggle to relinquish control over to the Almighty. We get in a place where we can't trust God completely, so we take matters into our own hands. Either that or we live in this constant state of fear and anxiety. Right? This is what it means to choose fear over faith. But here's what I want us to see this morning. When we choose that, when we choose fear Aren't we actually becoming a slave to the very thing we think brings security to us? Let me illustrate it this way. The Israelites demand a king, and the warning that God gives them is that you will become his slave. And guess what? Ultimately, they become slaves to a king because they chose fear over faith. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. For example, if you have to be married to be happy, you become a slave to marriage. You become dependent upon that other person to make you happy. And what happens is that when you get married, because you depend on marriage for happiness and security in your life, you wind up becoming codependent upon that person and you've misplaced your trust in another human when your trust should be in the Lord God Almighty. Or if you have to be successful to find fulfillment, you ultimately become a slave to success. You become a workaholic because you find security in in making money. It's where you find your security. If you have to have some escape to release the stress or to feel relaxed, it can quickly enslave you. And lead to addiction of drugs, alcohol, overeating, debt, you name it. If we are seeking safety and security in anything but God, we will become a slave to that very thing. And it will drive us. It is God's design for our life that we have no other kings in our life. That He solely is king that we would solely find security in him when we get to that point it's when we've chosen faith over fear because only in the lord is there true freedom you're listening to trinity baptist church's hope for the broken podcast if you would like to learn more about this ministry visit us online at trinitytx.org that's trinitytx.org here's pastor chris to wrap up our time together thanks for listening today 
I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 930 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.